We are celebrating the International Day of Prayer today, and uh, Ingrid is going to help us uh, to do that. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Mark. Good morning, everybody. So how fitting it is to uh, remember the persecuted church on Remembrance Day. Um, Many of our brothers and sisters in the world don't have the freedoms that our armed forces um, paid for or purchased for us with their sacrifice. We have freedom of religion, freedom of assembly. And the reality is that the persecution of Christians in the world is actually very real. They do not have those freedoms that we have here. It is estimated that this is a reality for more than about 340 million Christians. This is almost like the entire population of the United States. For many, persecution starts the minute they become Christians or, or put their faith in Jesus. So what does persecution look like? The degrees of persecution vary from one extreme to the other. It could be from just being harassed, your rights taken away, um, denial of your human rights, your property is confiscated, your family is shunning you or your community shuns you, you're incarcerated, you could be tortured, and you can even be killed because of your faith. But how do we know when that persecution is because of what a believer believes? So how do we know that a believer is being persecuted because of their faith in Jesus? And it's not being persecuted for other reasons. So to distinguish religious persecution from other types of persecution, it is helpful to ask yourself, if that person had another religion, or if that person denied the Lord Jesus Christ, would it be better for them? Would things improve? And if we answer is yes, that means we know that that person is being persecuted because of their faith in Jesus. So what what can we do to help our brothers and sisters? God calls us to pray for the persecuted. In Hebrews 13, 3, he says, Remember those who are in prison as though you are in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. So very often people don't know exactly what to pray. Sometimes God calls some to remain in prison, to be the light to those that are in darkness and share the gospel. So we don't know, do we pray that they're released from prison or not? Others, God calls to leave, to escape. So we can pray for them, that if God opens the door for them, that they are able to find uh, freedom in other countries. So how do we pray for them? Well, it says here, remember those in prison as though you are in prison with them and those that are mistreated. We sometimes hear from Christians in prison that they are so fearful of denying the Lord under torture and extreme conditions. So we can pray for them to be remaining strong, 
that the Holy Spirit will give them the boldness and the courage to continue on. Some of them are starved, very weak physically. We can pray that the captors will have a change of heart and will treat them better. Uh, that they may be, will fed, be fed. Maybe that their rights will be restored. Um, some are very worried about their families. Can you imagine you as a mom or as a dad being imprisoned because of your faith? You worry about your children, about your spouse, how they're going to support themselves. Often it's just the breadwinner bread that is in prison. So you can pray for that. And so there are many ways you put yourself in your shoes that you can pray for that. So let's bow our heads and pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much for our freedoms here and help us not to take all that for granted. There are members in our family, Lord, um, brothers, sisters, their children, who have placed their faith in you and are systematically and brutally persecuted because of that. Lord Jesus, we don't understand why... We, they're born there and they have to suffer and we have these freedoms. But you do call us to pray for them. So we pray for those that you, they are chosen to remain in prison, that they're bold enough to continue to, to sh uh, share the gospel and bring everlasting um, salvation through you to those that have none in the darkness in prisons. We pray for those, Lord, that... Um, have lost their jobs or um, are being harassed and um, abused and discriminated against in other countries, that you will give them the strength to continue on. May they feel that uh, you are right there with them and that you're walking with them. And overall, Lord, we pray for those that are persecuting them, that you will touch their hearts and that they will see how Christians are able to forgive a power that only you can give. And may they come to know you because of their witness. Thank you, Lord, for everything that you have done for us and the freedoms you've purchased. Above everything, Lord, we thank you so much for one day being in a place where there's no more persecution, no more crying. Thank you for purchasing us for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, Ingrid. We appreciate that. Living in the country we live in, sometimes it's easy for us to forget that there are those around the world who are still suffering, being persecuted, put in prison, killed for their faith. Such an important thing to remember. Talking about prayer, this Friday at 7 o'clock, we're going to be holding a concert of prayer right here at Northgate. It's not an all-night thing. It's an hour, hour and a half. Um, we're going to come together as a church and just begin to listen to God, begin to hear his voice and, and sense uh, the direction that he has for us as a people of God, as his church, and uh, pray for one another. So I'd encourage you to come. Uh, it's going to be a wonderful time of prayer together, and uh, I think you'll, you'll really appreciate it, um, having been here. Uh, shoe boxes are available in the foyer if you want to pick one up. They are actually due back here next week. So you have a week to prepare those. There's a stack of them in the foyer 
I'd encourage you to pick one up. Next Sunday will be the Young Adult Lunch, and I assume that's going to be here at the church, so keep that in mind. And on December the 5th, we're going to be having a baptism. And so if you would like to be amongst one of those who will be, uh, who, who wish to be baptized, uh, speak to one of us as staff members or call the office. Uh, Felix is going to be have a, having a baptismal class, uh, that you can participate and we'll let you know, uh, when that is. And then also, finally, on November the 20th, uh, Diane Evans is going to be sharing a, uh, surviving the holidays uh, workshop. Uh, this is in uh, relation the relationship with grief share, uh, and it's just a one-off um, a seminar that you can attend if you have lost a loved one. Uh, you're grieving. You're wondering how am I going to get through this holiday? Uh, November the twentieth uh, is the 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 uh, event to attend, and you can talk with Diane or myself or Barbara or call the office, and uh, we can get you signed up for that. Let's pray together before Pastor Mark comes. Lord, thank you so much for this day of remembrance. Lord, we're remembering the martyrs, uh, those who are suffering and being persecuted for their faith. We're, we're remembering, Lord, those who have gone before us and paid the supreme sacrifice of their lives uh, in giving us the freedoms and the, um, the, the comforts that we are enjoying today. And, and those who went through that conflict and survived, and they're living today, and there are some still going through the conflict. They're still serving today, and we remember them <clears throat> as well. We pray, Lord, uh, that as we honor them, they will know uh, of our gratefulness in our hearts for what they have done for us and continue to do and we pray, Lord, for safety for those who are continuing to serve today. We pray that you will just bless Pastor Mark as he comes now and brings the word of God. Use him, Lord, to speak into our hearts the words that you would have us to hear. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Masks and mics don't go together very well. Good morning, church. Uh, at this time, the kids, if you haven't been dismissed, you can be dismissed out uh, to your kids' time. Uh, and the rest of us, let me encourage you, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, to turn with me to the book of Philippians. Uh, book of Philippians, chapter 3, uh, as we continue our series on the book of uh, Philippians uh, and just looking and discovering reasons for our joy in Christ is what uh, the book of Philippians has really been about. Um, this morning, I think Paul, when it comes to joy, I think this morning Paul really gets to the heart of it in our passage this morning. I would even go so far to say, if you don't get Paul's message in our passage this morning, you probably are not experiencing the joy of the Lord in your life. It, it is that important. Because uh, this passage is really, it, this is, it's the core of what our faith is all about. In fact, if I could preach one passage and only one passage on the book of Philippians, it would be this passage uh, we have before us this morning. Uh, we have a lot of ground to cover this morning, so we're just going to dig right in. If you'd like to follow along, I'll begin reading in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. We'll go all the way to verse 14 this morning. Where Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. 
To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count it as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the, the, the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, um, what amazing words we've already heard from Paul. I'm not even sure I, I feel like adding to them. Uh, as he talks about his passion for knowing you more. And Lord, I pray that even in these few moments we have together on this Sunday morning, that Lord, you would use this time, you would use my words to draw all of us closer to you. That Lord, all of us would know you more. And that you would do that through this sermon. That you would do it through our time here in the word. That you would do it through just the awakening of our hearts to not only our need, but our, our passion for Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would be with us now at this time, that you would be moving among us, that, that Lord, you would just speak deeply to our hearts this day. And if there's any distraction, any hindrance, any, anything else on our minds, that Lord, we, we, could, we could just put that aside now so that we could listen to your still small voice, hear you calling us closer to you um, and draw us to yourselves. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in his book uh, on evangelism, there's an author named Mark Middleburg uh, who tells a story about a man named Jim. Um, Jim, Jim was saved. And Jim, Jim was changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus transformed Jim's life. And he had passion because of that. He had a passion for God. He had a love for people. And more and more, he just had a 
burning desire, a burden to communicate the gospel with the people around him. And he felt a call to do that. But the problem was that the people that God called him to reach, people that God had put on his heart, weren't sort of the average people of his culture at that time. In fact, they were very different, very, very different. And Jim sort of wrestled with the question of, how do you bring the message of Jesus Christ into a setting that really seems so very foreign to him? Um, the people he was called to were, were outsiders with little to no biblical understanding. Well, even with the obstacles in front of him, Jim knew he had to try because God had given him a vision to make a difference in the lives of those men and women. So following the model of the Apostle Paul to be sort of all things to all people, Jim decided to take some risks that actually would make many people around him feel very uncomfortable. Because Jim decided he would change his life to fit into their culture. Uh, for starters, uh, he shaved the sides of his head right down to the skin, except for one patch of hair at the very back that he let lo grow long, and he dyed it jet black, and he began to wear it in a braid. He also gave up wearing a suit and tie and began to dress all in black, which was the fashion of the people that he was trying to reach, and he even changed his eating patterns. He, he, he worked hard to learn new vocabulary, new expressions, in the hope that he would be able to more effectively convey biblical, biblical truth in sort of the everyday street language of these people. And he read their books, and he studied their ideas, and he went out of his way just to try to find common ground. And he didn't do it all from a distance. He actually moved into the neighborhoods uh, to live and dwell with these people. He tried to become their friends. And that wasn't easy because they came from a pagan background, pagan lifestyle, and many of them just outright rejected his message. But he tried. So what did the other church leaders think of all of this? Did they rejoice at the dedication that Jim showed in living out the gospel? Did they celebrate Jim's commitment to reaching a lost people? Did they uphold him in prayer? Did they rally around him and offer him encouragement? Well, sadly, the answer was no. In fact, it wasn't even close. As most of the people in the church at that time misunderstood and misrepresented and Many of them even openly maligned him because of what he was doing. They were accusing Jim of giving up the gospel and walking away from his faith. And yet Jim persevered, um, receiving both persecution from his own church and the people he was trying to reach with the gospel. And he did that year after year after year. But you know what? Today, countless people from the neighborhoods Jim worked so hard to reach, now know and serve Jesus Christ and many generations of their family after them. In fact, his work impacted an entire nation. Because Jim, or as he's more widely known, James Hudson Taylor, was a man who more than a century ago went against the Church of England to become part of the Chinese culture he was trying to reach for Christ. And today, he's seen as one of the greatest pioneers of the modern missions movement. But why did people back then, especially people in the church, have so much trouble with the changes Jim was trying to make to share the gospel? 
I think the answer, the simple answer to that is legalism. And legalism is something the church has struggled pretty consistently with, pretty constantly for for 2,000 years. And when I say the word legalism, I don't want there to be too much confusion. What I mean by that is the idea that some people take man-made rules and then use those same rules as a measure of another person's level of righteousness or spirituality. They make man-made rules the, the standard we judge each other by. And as Max Lucado says about legalism, he says, legalism has no pity on people. Legalism makes my opinion your burden. It makes my opinion your boundary, and it makes my opinion your obligation. And that's exactly the attitude that Paul has in mind to correct as he continues writing in the book of Philippians. Um, Because the early church was no stranger to this danger. In fact, the early church even had sort of its own particular brand of legalism that was sort of prevalent, it prevailed at the time. Oh, I don't know what that word is. Uh, and, and Paul addresses that very specifically as he begins to write in verse 1, where he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for those who, uh, for those evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, back when Paul was still alive, there was, there was this group of people, this group of Jewish Christians, who, you know, based on sort of thousands of years of Jewish tradition, decided that they would take it upon themselves to write up a list of sort of do's and don'ts for the Gentile Christians. For them to follow in their own life. And this group of people where they were so adamant about that happening. That any time Paul had gone somewhere to preach the gospel and plant a church. uh, These legalists would actually sneak into town sometime later. And they would tell the people that Paul had reached. That they now also needed to follow all of these other rules. If they were going to be the right kind of Christian. You have to do this stuff. Because we tell you to. And that influence, that that legalism, it pops up in churches. I mean, it's in Galatia, and you read the Bible, it's Colossae, and Ephesians, and Corinth, and now even Philippi. That thinking pops up everywhere. And I think that's why Paul says in verse 1, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and safe for you. Because he, he, he writes about it all the time throughout his letters. Paul had to confront this legalistic attitude over and over and over again in his letters to the churches. And as I say that, I mean, these rules that these people put up, they were about things people could eat, uh, about the kind of clothes they were allowed to wear, the things you could do, things you couldn't do. But really when it came down to it, the big item on the list of these legalists, the matter that mattered most to them was circumcision. Um, And keep in mind, none of those things are things that have to do with knowing Christ more. They were just requirements that one group of people insisted on for the sake of their tradition and their own preferences. And I understand Paul Paul knew exactly what these guys were up to. Because at one time, Paul confesses, he was actually one of them. 
In fact, he was the, probably the best one of them. Because uh, as you look at verse 4 as he continues, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the, as to the, where I lost my place, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, the persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, he says, blameless. That's Paul's sort of personal resume of legalistic self-righteousness. And let me assure you that it was, for what it was, it was blameless, it was spotless. Paul, back when he was known as Saul, was sort of the ultimate legalistic overachiever of his day. One author notes that had they had newspapers or magazines in his day, Paul's picture would have been on the front page and the headline would have read, Religious Zealot of the Decade. Because Saul tells it, he followed all of the rules. He loved the rules. He was good at the rules. And he worked harder and longer and more zealously about keeping those rules than anyone else. And he he had it all. He had ceremony, he had the rituals, he nailed the traditions, he had a pure racial heritage, he came from a good family, he studied in all of the right schools, he studied with all of the right teachers, he had position and status and influence among his peers. I mean, all of those rules brought him a lot of prestige. And those were all things that people thought used to matter when it came to pleasing God. And unfortunately, those kind of attitudes are not all things that are still in the past. In fact, I think there are people, even believers, out there today who think that just following the rules is what Christianity is about. They think that when you become a Christian, life suddenly becomes about the do's and the don'ts. And there's all this pressure to behave, the pressure to try and act and look and, and talk a certain way in order to try and fit in. They think that there's all of these traditions and, 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 and do's and don'ts and rules you need to follow. And if you don't follow them, you, you don't ever feel like you fit into the church. And, and you're not really seen as, as being the right kind of Christian. And it's tragic. But you know what the truth is? I can actually see the attraction that legalism has to offer people. I get why it's so binding and why it's so easy to fall into the trap of just following the rules. I think there's three reasons why we have to be so careful about legalism. And the first is that legalism, it makes faith simple. Um, Because legalism reduces our faith in Jesus Christ down to just a couple of rules you need to follow. And you know, rules are easy. At least they're easy to understand. So you know what? Instead of worrying about building a relationship with Jesus, which, you know, it could be complex. It could be challenging in our lives. You just make it about, you know, faith is just one long checklist of things you do and you don't. You check them off the list and you're done. Rules are simple. I actually once heard someone saying, this was profound, he said, legalism is seductive because it makes religion easy by appearing to be hard. And that's a temptation. It just makes it simple. Just follow the rules. And the second temptation of legalism is that legalism, it just, it feeds our pride. You know, legalism just, I mean, it sets up these hoops for people to jump through. And if you do, It gives you this illusion that you're accomplishing something. 
And legalism gives us a way to sort of grade our faith. You know, your success can be measured by how well you do in following these rules. And if you do a really good job, then you get to compare yourself with the others. (laughs) You know, uh, when you follow the rules better, you get to look down on all those other people who don't follow the rules better. And you get to feel superior. I'm better at this than you are. Legalism, it's very smug. It's very self-righteous. It feeds our prides. It puffs us, us, us up and it lets us tear down others at the same time. It's so full of pride. Look what I can do. Which leads to the third temptation about legalism. And that's legalism offers people power. And the power to control others. You know, if you're... If you're the one who gets to set those rules that other people need to follow, it means you get to be in charge. Legalism says to people, you must live this way. You must do these things. You you know, you have to do what I tell you to do or you'll be judged. And that's a powerful incentive. And if you're, you know, if you're caught up in this legalistic lifestyle, it can be very hard to give up because you know you're going to lose your status. My, 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 my self-importance is caught up in legalism. How do I let that go? The power of legalism, the power to control people is such a big temptation when it comes to legalism. And those are very powerful temptations for our hearts to overcome. Pride and power and self-control and self-righteousness. And that's what Paul tells us. At one time, he had that in abundance. He was the master at legalistic living. But then something happened that I think Paul never really expected. Because in that legalistic lifestyle he was living, he met Jesus. He went and all the story on that lonely road on the way to Damascus. Jesus shows up and introduces himself to, to Paul. And in that moment, Everything changed. Paul's entire life was turned upside down. Because Paul, he thought all of those rules that I'm following must be bringing me closer to God. But the moment God shows up in front of him, Paul realizes he doesn't know him at all. He even asks, who are you? (laughs) And it was the grace of God that did for Paul everything that his legalism couldn't. And Paul is really setting up that contrast in these verses. It's that, it, that contrast between just the emptiness of just following the rules and going through the rituals of Christianity versus the freedom and the life that is found in a living dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. It's legalism versus life in Christ. And as Paul says in verse 7, He's made his choice about those two. He says, but whatever gain I had in that old legalistic life he used to have, he says, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And I hope it's sort of evident by now that the biggest problem with legalism is just coming to that understanding that just following the rules doesn't bring you any closer to God. There's no real power in rule following to change a person's heart or life. Because while sort of rules have some ability to change a person's outward behavior, it has no power to transform a person's heart. And Jesus said much the same thing about the Pharisees who were, you know, they were the rule-following masters in their day and time. But Jesus says about them in Matthew 26, verse 25, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. He's saying to them, guys, you know, your rules make you look really impressive to people. You make a really good impression on the outside. But on the inside, your life is a mess. And all of those rules you insist on following have gotten you nowhere and they've earned you nothing in the sight of God. And that's why Paul, when he came to that understanding, he walked away from legalism in order to follow Christ. He got rid of all of those traditions that he used to be so proud of. And when he realized how useless they were, he says that he considered them rubbish. He considered everything rubbish and worthless, something to be thrown away. And in their place, he said, I embrace Jesus. And my desire to know him and know him more. And that became sort of the new desire, the new passion of Paul's life and his heart. And I love his words in verse 10 when Paul says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. I think when you hear those words, you hear Paul's great passion. That that is what became his true motivation now for all things. Paul's telling us, this is what I now live for. I live to know Christ and to know him more and more and more. And when Jesus, or when Paul talks about knowing Jesus, he's saying, I really, I, I don't want to just know about him. I want to know him and really know him. I want to know him fully in every way. I want to know about the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his sufferings. I want to become like him in death that I might even attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul was saying, I want to know and experience everything that Christ has to offer me. I want to know his life. I want to know his death. I want to experience his sufferings. I want to know everything in between. There was nothing about Jesus' life that Paul wants to be left out. And there's no area of Paul's life where he didn't want Jesus to come in. Paul wanted to make Jesus his only priority. I think in the end, that's what set Paul's heart free. That was the source of his joy in the Lord. And the big lesson for us here today is that needs to still be true for us as well in our lives. This is what God wants to see in the lives of all of his disciples. All of the people who call themselves followers of Jesus. 
So I'm just going to rattle the cage here a little bit. And just ask you, if you were to reflect on your life this morning, what's the driving force in your life? What's the most important thing? What's your purpose? What is your passion? What are you living for? And I know that's a big question. But you know what? When it really comes down to it, there is no more important question that we need to answer as we live our lives. And to all of those questions, would your answer be Jesus? And I've read this quote before, but C.S. Lewis speaks so well when he says, the only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. If it's really true, then it deserves everything you've got. It's all or nothing. You either believe that Christianity is true and let Christ determine the rest of your life, or you should just forget about it and do whatever you want. Because you can't have it both ways. Truth is, you have to choose. It's impossible to have two number one priorities in your life. And Paul made his choice. He knew where he stood. He made his choice about Jesus Christ in his life. And so have you. Whether you like it or not, whether you realize it or not, you have made a choice about knowing and following Jesus in your own life. Because you know where your passion lies. You know what you have set as your priorities. You know how you're spending your time. You know where your heart stands this morning and you know if Jesus has been given a back seat. But you also need to know that even now, Jesus calls every single one of us to a deeper relationship with him. He calls us to freedom from just sort of following the rules, from just going through the motion, and he calls us to a place of knowing him more. And no matter where you stand right now, the good news is you can always make that choice and draw closer to God. I want to take just a few moments to encourage you to do that because as Paul continues to write, he actually gives us three, I think, much needed pieces of advice that are so helpful when it comes to trying in our lives to know Jesus more. And these will just be like a few applications for us to remember and they come from the last few final verses of our passage. And there's three of them that I think really we need to make note of. The first application is simply make progress. Uh, just remember that knowing Christ is about progress. It's not about perfection. I love verse 12. Where Paul says, Not that I've already attained this or am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I, I love those words. I take comfort in those words because I know in my own life I'm not perfect. And there's times in all of our lives when we know we, we make mistakes, we slip up, we goof off when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. And I know some people can get so upset about that, that, so upset that they're not perfect all the time that they beat themselves up and they get down on themselves whenever they fail and they get to this really kind of very dark place, you know, of, of sort of, yeah, beating themselves up. 
But that's when we need to remember most that our focus should be on making progress, not on whether or not we're perfect. After all, I think if there was someone who could sort of, who could have done it, who could have made it, who could have been, you know, someone who could have achieved the highest goal and been perfect in God's sight, it would have been the Apostle Paul. If anybody could have done this thing perfectly, it was him. I mean, he was, he was, a, he was zealous, man. He dedicated everything, his whole life, to the pursuit of God. And even he says right here, hey, guys, I'm not perfect. I'm still working on it. Because Paul knew that knowing Christ was not about sort of getting to a destination. It was about enjoying the journey. And he's just saying, you know what? Every day, I just want to be one step closer to Christ than I was the day before. Every day, he wanted to know Jesus just that little bit better than he did. And none of us can ever get to a place where we can say, we know Jesus completely. But every one of us can live our lives saying we know him better than we did the day before. Our focus should be on just continual and constant progress in our relationship with Jesus. Make progress. That's the first thing we need to keep in mind. Here's the second thing. And that's just don't let your past drag you down either. The the past is over. Let it go. Forget about it. Verse 13, he says, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. When you're getting to know Christ, don't let your past drag you down or discourage you. And I'm sure that probably weighed heavy on Paul at some time. Remember, he was a persecutor of the church. That's some heavy baggage. And I know people, you know, in ministry who are just stuck and even crippled in their relationship with God because they feel like, I can't let go of my past. People who just, they're, they're wrestling with past mistakes that they've made. Or people who think, you know, I've done things. If you knew I had done these things, I'm not even sure God could love me or accept me for what I've done. They can't let go of the past. But you know what? We've all done things we're ashamed of. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that's why Jesus came. He didn't come to condemn us. He came to save us. And it's time for us to receive the fullness of the freedom and the forgiveness that Christ offers to us when it comes to our past. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus took care of all of our sins. He took care of all of that stuff in the past. And we can let it go. Because of the cross, your past is forgiven. And we need to leave the past behind and press on. Which is just what Paul says as he concludes in our final application, beginning in verse uh, 13. Or continuing, last part of verse 13. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, he says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of, of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's final word of advice here when it comes to knowing Jesus is keep at it persevere, press on, make a commitment to press towards that goal and just keep working at it. And again, I think this is so timely for us today because you know what? A relationship with Jesus Christ isn't easy. And as a society, I don't think we're really good at doing hard things anymore. 
we can kind of get used to living in a pretty comfortable world where things are easy. And, you know, we have, we have instant coffee and fast food and microwave dinners and pre-made everything and we can cure stuff with a pill. Um, I think this is part of why marriages are failing so fast and furious these days because people just expect relationships to work. They don't want to work on their relationships. But relationships aren't easy. They're not instant. They're not things. Relationships are not things of convenience. And knowing Christ is a relationship. And we can't expect that to be easy. That's why we need to commit to it. We need to invest in it. We need to press on and persevere and strain forward in our effort in knowing Christ and knowing him more. And that's really Paul's advice. That's advice that he put in place, uh, into practice in his own life. Just to keep making progress, to forget the past, and keep pressing forward and making a commitment every day to know Christ more. And that's really what sets our hearts free. That's the joy that Paul is speaking of that we can discover uh, as our passage comes full circle. Because if you go back to chapter 3, verse 1, uh, where it all begins, Paul says to his readers, rejoice in the Lord. And I think Paul, with all that stuff that follows, he's telling his readers, this is the key. If you want to live that life of rejoicing, don't get caught up in anything else. Don't forget about Jesus. Don't forget about the joy and the peace and the hope and the wonder that comes from discovering the grace of Jesus and knowing him more. Because you know what? When you get to the end of, the, of your life, you're not going to regret you didn't watch enough TV. You're not going to regret you didn't spend enough time on Facebook. You're not going to regret that you didn't work enough overtime or that you weren't busier in your life. But when it comes to Jesus and your relationship with him, believe me when I tell you, you will never regret the time that you put into your relationship with him, getting to know him more. And that's a good transition as we come to the communion table this morning. You know, as we reflect on all that Christ has done for us through these elements that represent Jesus' broken body and his shed blood, it's important to remember that. And I know Mark said this last week, but I'm going to say it again, because we want you to know the truth in your heart, that Jesus came for you, and that he died for you and your sins upon the cross so that you could be forgiven. And we want you to know that Jesus was raised to life on the third day and that he is still alive and that he wants to be with you in your life right now. And if you're listening to me, you can hear my voice this morning and you've not made that decision to accept Jesus' forgiveness in your life, you can do that today. You know, everything that we've talked about this morning can be yours if you want it in Christ Jesus. Jesus will be your Savior. He will be your Lord. He will be your friend. And he will offer you freedom. You just have to go to God in prayer and tell him that you know that you are a sinner who needs a Savior. Believe that Jesus is the sinless Son of God who died on the cross in your place and ask him to save you and to come into your life 
and transform you. And to bring you the promise that he gives of the hope and the love and the life and the joy and the peace that is available to you in Christ Jesus. And God will do that. God will answer that prayer. And you too can know the joy of finding freedom in Christ. We can be free from the rules and the rituals and the mistakes of our past. And we can find a relationship with Jesus that changes everything. And know the joy of knowing him more and more. Let's pray together. Father God, um, in so many ways, this is a a Sunday of remembrance. Um, Lord, we remember those who have fallen in battle, purchasing our freedom um, from, from these worldly powers through war. We remember the persecuted church, Lord, who are suffering for their faith in so many different ways. We want to lift them up in prayer as our brothers and sisters in Christ. And now, Lord, we are called to come to this table once again to remember you and the price that you paid. And that's such an important lesson, Lord. As we are called back to reflect on Christ, Because, Lord, that is the core of our faith, to to know you more. It's not about legalism. It's not about rules. It's not about following tradition. It's not about trying harder. It's about embracing you and discovering your grace and knowing you more in our lives. And again, sometimes things in our life get in the way of that. Sometimes we get tripped up and fall back into old patterns and we get bound up in old sin And sometimes it's just busyness and distraction and a lack of the proper priorities that gets us off track. But Lord, again, at this time, in this moment, in this place, we just ask that you would help us set our eyes back on Christ. That in our hearts we would make you our number one priority. That everything else, Lord, we would be able to, like Paul, say, that's just rubbish. And if it's getting the way, we need to let it go so that we can have more of you. And Lord, as we come to the table, we pray that we would just meet you here. And that we would remember who you are, that you are the sinless Son of God who came to be our sacrifice on the cross. And remember what you did as you laid down your life on our behalf. We pray, Lord, that you would keep these things in mind as we come to the table this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, we want to invite you to join us as we do communion again this morning. And um, in a little bit, I'll call up the servers who can come and help me. But um, just thank you to, to, to Rob and Fred who will help me this morning. But again, this table, this table is a place of remembrance. The bread reminds us of the body of Christ that was broken for us on the cross. The cup represents the blood shed on our behalf. And it's Jesus himself that commands us to to do these things in remembrance of him. And I pray that we would remember Christ as we come again this morning. And again, you don't have to be a member of our church to take this meal with us. All you need to have is faith in Christ Jesus, belief that he died for your sins. And for those who are here in person, uh, just remember, we're using these special cups this morning. Um, The the first little tab 
Uh, you pull that up. There's a little wafer under there you can take for the bread. And then the second tab, you pull it back, uh, and there'll be some, some juice uh, that we'll take for the cup. Um, yeah, but just, I think before we even jump into this and read the passages, I'm going to ask if the, the worship team would just lead us and just spend some time just focusing our hearts as we come to the table this morning. This time I'll ask those who are going to help serve to come forward and join me here this morning and to help focus our hearts. Let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'll ask Rob if he would give thanks for the broken body of our Lord. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice for us. We thank you for your body broken for us, for our sins, for our freedom, for our peace with you. We thank you that this is such a key part of your work of reconciling all things to yourself and chief among them, us. And we're just utterly humbled, grateful. We just bow before you that you would do this for us. Amen. Jesus said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
Then Paul tells us in the same way. He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Fred, would you return thanks? Our gracious God, we thank you for the privilege to do what you commanded us to do in remembrance of you. Even as we partake in this uh, communion today, help us remember the sacrifice you paid for us. And because of that, Lord, we ask for grace and strength to press on and recommit ourselves to making progress in our commitment to you. In the life of faith you lived, you desired us to live. Father, we just thank you for all you did for us. And thank you, God, because your blood will avail and atone for us where we need it most. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This time I'll ask the worship team if they would lead us in a closing song. <laughs>